Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone of the Department of History at Augustana College. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello. In another of our continuing conversations and uh, sub-series on Historically Thinking, which might be called a user's guide to higher education, we're joined again by Mark Salisbury, a vice president. Is it vice president, Mark? I'm sorry, I got the title wrong. No, you can promote me anytime you want. Yeah, I would love to promote you. Well, you're doing that right now. Thank you very much. <laughs> Director of Institutional Research is the is the actual title. Assistant Dean, um, something like that. Other duties as assigned. Yeah, did you? I mean, we. I, I'm. I'm just blown in a complete hole in the introduction. So I might as well observe that. Did you just read about the the article about? Uh, per, uh, was it Syracuse University has 200 administrators that have only one report? That's. I mean, we've got a lot of work to do. That's a pretty pretty big hierarchy. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but anyway, uh, it's as part of our user's guide to higher education, we're going to talk today about what students should do and faculty should do in the first three weeks of college. We're, we're recording this in early August. It will be appearing on the website and on iTunes in late August. And if you're a parent or a professor and on the probably nine to one chance against your student, we hope that the next uh, 40 minutes are going to be a useful introduction to what both sides of the classroom, front end and those standing up and those sitting down, should be doing in the first three weeks. So, um, fostering ideal learning conditions. Um, That sounds to many faculty an almost impossible task. Um, we go about it for the most part. I certainly did, um, probably my first year of teaching. We go about it through folklore. Uh, we go through it about, uh, opinions unsupported by facts. Um, what student behaviors actually would demonstrate the existence of ideal learning conditions? Well, this is a, you're, I mean, this is right. There's an awful lot of folklore out there, but, um, and the old school, sort of mythology looks something like uh, faculty members filling a glass of water and the glasses sit there and as long as it looks like a glass and shaped like a glass and has a big hole in the top you dump water in there you've done your yeah, job right and yeah. right um, the problem is is that that's just not that's not a real effective metaphor for really how learning works um, and it's sort of really the better metaphor is if you've got you know two two live wires and you're trying to touch them together to create a spark um, you can you can really screw that up uh, that's another story but um, the the idea here is is that both players the learner and the teacher play a huge role in fostering those kinds of conditions and it's certainly not something that you just do once um, and it's certainly not something that you have total control over but there's some things you can do um, from both sides of the of the equation the professor and the student to make the likelihood much higher that more often than not 
um, students are going to learn and students are going to plug in. Now, what, 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 two observations, Mark, to, before we move on to that. Um, one is you're saying teaching is a dangerous business. Um, Absolutely. Live wires. Yeah, it is. And that's good. It's good to remember for both teachers. It's also important for students to understand that. And, and also parents, the other, uh, now before we get into this, uh, I was talking about an issue related to this, to a very cynical fellow historian who said, well, you know, you know what he said now? He said, you can prove anything with this. You know, my wife's an education theory and people can prove any kind of model. And so from that standpoint, everything you're about to say can easily be discounted. Mm -hmm. Now, on the one hand, there's probably not a whole lot you can say to someone who wishes to be aggressively skeptical about anything. Right. Um, that's kind of the lesson of the first book of the Republic, but that's another story. Um, but what would you say, what would be your best argument to the sort of world weary faculty skeptic? Um, I, I guess I'd start with, um, step away from the intellectual overload and visit the uh, emotional side of your being if there's anything left of it and say when you when when teaching is going well what's it feel like and do you like that and when teaching isn't going well what's it feel like and do you like that and then secondly i'd say like why did you get into this in the first place um and if the answer is I got into it entirely just to do research and the students are just part of the job that I hate, the next thing I'd say, well, go find something else to do. Um, but assuming that that's not the case, um, start with, I mean, this, on, on some level, this is not rocket science. This learning is an affective entity it's not it's not just about regurgitating facts learning that especially learning that is uh has a long impact is sits in the affective domain and so my first response would be to just get away from this isn't about this isn't really about proving anything this is about just if you're going to do work whatever it is it should be gratifying it should actually have an have a long-term effect in the world that we live in um and to me that's where all of this starts and and so from there then there actually is a lot of good research on what works for learning and what doesn't work for learning um you know we turns out that beating people is uh, perpetually doesn't really work very well for learning. <laughs> um, so what, what sort of student behaviors do, if we see these behaviors, we can see that something close to ideal learning conditions exist. So anytime any, anybody's ever tried to teach a class in terms of, and, and have a discussion in class, mm-hmm. we, everybody knows the difference between the sounds of crickets in their absence and the sound of students engaged in active conversation. 
Mm-hmm. Everybody knows what that feels like. Everybody knows what that looks like. Everybody knows what that sounds like. If you got crickets, that's not good. If you've got students engaged in conversation in the discussion and uh, folks are suggesting ideas, somebody's challenging another idea, somebody's rethinking something that just got said a little bit ago, somebody's bringing some other in piece of information to bear on the topic. If that's happening, that's a that's an ideal learning condition. Now we can get to what in just a second what a professor how a professor should elicit that. Um, I have some ideas about that, but um, one of the focuses of your research, it seems to me, is that um, if a student is not participating in class, uh, then they're not they're actually wasting their time in class. That may be true. Um, I mean, it, it it is. It's a participation is a is a sort of stickly or prickly notion, um, because you've certainly got some students that are more inclined to participate just because they're real extroverts, um, and then you got some students who are real introverts, and um, they're not inclined to participate immediately, and. Um, it would be a mistake to make the judgment that, well, the kids that aren't speaking up are, you know, are not plugged in. Um, but this is part of the professor's job is to figure out a way to solicit their participation. That doesn't mean that they're going to be the loudest voice in class every day, but you can still tell the difference between somebody whose eyes are glaze and somebody whose eyes are following the conversation and maybe even nodding every once in a while. Um, and the look on their face is one of clearly being present. Um, you can tell the difference. And so, you know, the professors can, professors can certainly do different things to and one of the biggest things in that context is to build some rapport, build some trust with that student so that they're more likely to speak up. So how should we do that? Well, that's a good question. There's a, there are a couple of different things that, that I think I've seen work. One of them is, is that is literally in, instead of just saying to students, hey, I have office hours, um, and if you would like to come talk to me, come. Um, you know, lots of lots of professors have spent a lot of time in office hours by themselves um, because when you pose it that way, um, it suggests the absence of a power dynamic that the student is very aware of. Um, and students, you know, if they see the professor as, oh, I only go to the professor if I absolutely have to, they're going to rationalize their way out of going until it's probably too late. Um, but you can certainly create some sort of early in the term, during the first week, just short 15, 10-minute check-in time where all the students come to, come to the professor's office hours or meet them in a coffee shop on campus or something like that. And um, you just have a short sit-down, talk about their interests, talk about why they're in the class, talk about um, what they might have to, they're, they're interested or curious about, and begin to develop some rapport um, and a relationship, and, and then try to keep that in mind as you're having a conversation in class, that you can then use that to cultivate some trust, and, and even a quieter student might well 
be more inclined to to say something, to speak up because now they trust the facilitator of that conversation, and that facilitator is a person, not just a talking head. Yeah, I've been doing that. I I think with success every term, I find um, if that sounds too touchy feely to some of you, I um, just to invite them to you know have a rap and and converse and find out about them. I find an excuse. I usually do a diagnostic paper the first week and then I have them come the second week for just as little as five minutes, 10 minutes. Um, they'd sign up on our, on a roster, um, time that's good for them during on one day. And then we discuss the paper, but I also make certain to find out something about them that they don't have in common with anyone else. I don't ask that. I just ask a few questions about them, where they're from, what the, what it's like, that sort of thing. Um, and that way I remember their name. I've got something to add to their, to that, um, uh, to their names and their face. Um, that's unmistakable. Uh, and, and that way I find that I'm not alone in office hours for the rest of the term. Um, they, they become rapidly habituated to coming to the office. Yeah. I think I think that's a the, just getting to know them just a little bit. I mean, one of the things that I think faculty I think we forget about is we think of ourselves as you know imperfect, trying to do our thing, and there's always somebody who's better at, than us at doing whatever is the thing we're doing. Um, we may even be aware of being socially awkward and everything else, um, but we certainly don't think enough about the degree to which the student sees us in a very different light than we see ourselves. Um, and if you want to have classrooms that are there's, there's active conversation, it's a vibrant, engaged atmosphere, um, you have to do some things to, to actively um, combat the, that sort of assumed power dynamic um, because it's, it's there in the student's mind before they even walk into the room. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, the other thing I would recommend is um, – to my mind, probably the best in classroom um, teaching technique is cold calling. Uh, once you've established that, um, that uh, is to actively elicit participation um, and uh, keep a chart. Everyone sits in the same place after the first two, day, two days um, and see, see how often you um, call on people. And, yeah, you can, uh, you can do cold calling in a way that, you know, once you have rapport, Suddenly, the the negative that's associated, the potential negative that's associated with cold calling, is, is once you have a rapport, that negative sort of goes away, yeah, because now right. it's you're having a conversation between two people that, and you can do a lot to sort of solicit and elicit uh, the degree to which you believe in that student's ability to answer the questions or or mm-hmm. to think carefully about what you're asking them to think about. Um, yeah. but once you have that rapport, it changes a whole lot of things where yeah, I think that's right. the cold call without that certainly has potential f- for downside. It, it, and there, I mean, it's a carrot stick thing. People are, some people are always going to regard it as a stick, uh, for a substantial plurality. I think it also convinces them to participate because they're going to be called on anyway. Mm-hmm. It does change. It changes the dynamic of a classroom in a, in a really, um, useful way. And then I think it emphasizes the fact that they're responsible too, um, for, for what the, for time in the classroom. Well, another, uh, student behavior, uh, that exists and demonstrates, um, ideal learning conditions or something approaching that. Yeah. The 
sometimes students, and I think we've all seen this, sometimes students sort of treat going to class like they would go into a factory job. You know, you, you might as well have a clock that you just punch your card as you walk into class and then punch out when you leave. Um, and they do that intellectually as well. Um, that sort of goes back to that old the metaphor of the the uh, glass and the and the water, right? Where you show up, put your glass down, fill up, leave, um, and it, the the whole exercise, the whole interchange is done. Um, yeah. But we know the way learning works is you're thinking about ideas, you're turning them over in your head, you're looking something up because you just all of a sudden are really curious about it and curious how it connects to the idea that you're thinking about. Um, one one piece of evidence of, of ideal learning conditions that's equally important to the in-class participation is, um, is the out-of-class participation. And what I mean by that a use of the phrase participation is just an engagement with the course outside of class. Um, students just seem to be thinking about the class and the topic and the conversations that you had outside of class. Um, they're walking around the store looking for a, um, you know, looking for something to eat, and all of a sudden they think, well, wait a minute, what was it that Professor Zambon said? What about, you know, that's the kind of engaged learning that you you want to try to foster now the immediate reaction to that is well like chance would be a fine thing or sure whatever that just makes me feel really bad because why would anyone want to talk about my class outside of class um only really charismatic professors um maybe insane professors uh can have that effect on students <laughs> well the insane part yeah uh, yeah but maybe oh. you know um I don't think that a restraining order is necessarily a measure of ideal right. learning condition. They're, they're not talking about the subject. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> um, but there's certainly ways that you can – I mean, again, this is, this is the professor um, doing their half of the equation to foster the ideal learning condition, even as a student, may not necessarily want to do that, right? Students come to college – most likely they come to college with that mindset that you punch in and punch out when the class bell rings, right? I mean, why do I think we use bells? It sounds just like a factory, right? Yeah. Um, might as well have a whistle. <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that'd be great. Then everyone could hear it. Right. At the University of Iowa, they actually have that. And it's, you got to be kidding me. Still? <laughs> no, they have a big, uh, you know, the, the big whistle that goes off at the top of the smokestack. Uh, yeah. At uh, like first thing in the morning, at noon, at one, and at five o'clock, and you couldn't feel more like a knowledge factory um, than when you hear that thing. It just cracks me up. I want to grab my lunchbox and watch it walk home. It's like a Looney Tunes cartoon. Yeah, right. Um, but that you know the. Students are going to come, most likely come to college with that mindset that they plug in, plug out, and, and unplug. And um, faculty know that if you really want people plugged in and to, to learning in a college environment, that we've got to, we've got to fight against that. And we've got to contest that and create something different. And so there's, there are certainly ways for professors to, to – to sort of make that happen somehow, or at least find a way to make it more likely that that happens. So what's an example of that? 
Well, um, one of the things that matters is that if, if the students think that their learning is just sort of rote learning, and the only reason they're really learning it is so that they can get a grade, they're a lot more likely to just sort of be extrinsically motivated to, to do what they need to do in class. And extrinsic motivation in and of itself isn't bad, but by itself, it certainly is a limiting element to somebody plugging in just a little bit more. Um, if you're just extrinsically motivated, the tendency is to do enough to get the grade that you want to get, but not do any more because that would be inefficient. Um, instead, you know, when students understand that why it is that they're learning what they're learning and how that helps them develop skills and dispositions that's going to give them <clears throat> advantages in other contexts. For example, they're developing <clears throat> the ability to, learn, to think critically, and then they see how they can use that way of thinking critically to, um, to challenge an assumption in a uh, group meeting for an organization they're a part of later. Um, all of a sudden, th that, that lights a fire. That's, a, oh, wait a minute, I can, if I learn this stuff, I'm actually going to give myself a chance to, do, to be more successful in other things either concurrently or later. Um, and there are ways that, I mean, professors can talk specifically about the ways that the things that the students are learning in class apply to the different things they're doing outside of class and in different contexts. And you can ask students to look for those moments and then report back. Um, how is it that the thing you, we did in class or the thing you learned as a part of the assignment for this class, how did you then use it in another setting and was it successful and, and how so? Um, you can get kids to report that stuff back and that can become, sort of, sort of have a bit of a ripple effect um, because some students are going to see those connections sooner than others. Um, but if you can shift their motivation so that it's not entirely extrinsic but it's to some degree intrinsic, um, and meaning that they're doing it because they see how it makes them better, and then that sort of produces a sense that this is just interesting. Now, there's, there's a problem with this, as I've thought about this, and uh, it's that professors are sometimes the worst people to do this. Um, I like to do the history of colonial America and the American Revolution because I think it's fascinating. Mm -hmm. Just in, it's already intrinsically fascinating to me. So trying to explain that is difficult. Mm -hmm. um, I think historically, because, well, you know, I just, well, I, because I was trained to. Because you uh, do a podcast about it. Well, I do. <laughs> but um, it, it's, uh, if you don't think about how you think historically, um, you know more than you can say. Right. And it's difficult then to um, explain that if you haven't sat down and thought through um, from first principles. Right. Well, this is where I think, um, I mean, underlying this and what you just sort of referred to is a part of a pretty major and fundamental shift in um, higher education. And that mm -hmm. is that, you know, it, it, very much old school used to be that you went to college to learn uh, facts, content knowledge. Um, smarter became the people who could win at Jeopardy. Um, that kind of information. Um, whether we like it or not, we can begrudgingly admit that 
that information is now ubiquitous. It's everywhere. You can get it. You don't need to pay the money to go to college to get every piece of information you could ever want and more. Um, and for the, you're right. Most of the students in any one of your classes um, aren't going to spend the rest of their lives focusing on the content area of that class, whether it's you know general chemistry or whether it's uh, colonial America. But and this is where the, the shift has occurred, the focus of higher education has been, it's a lot more explicit now to talk about different skills, different dispositions, different higher order ways of, of seeing and understanding the world that, that then are applicable in almost every situation for the rest of your, of your life. And content then becomes the means by which you teach those skills. And faculty, I think, can really help themselves by being clear with students about, we're using this content, this is important, this is interesting, but we're using this content to develop these skills. And um, you can't develop the skills in a vacuum. You can't develop these sort of complex intellectual skills in a vacuum. You have to have some content to, to apply them to. Um, so we're going to talk about, we're going to use that content to learn these skills, and then we're going to talk about how you learn these, how you can take these skills and apply them in other settings. And then you students, you guys are going to practice that. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, so when I'm teaching um, the first couple of weeks of, of American history, I'm teaching them historically, historical thinking. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying, look, you're going to be, if you're an insurance adjuster or a cop, or even if you're a doctor doing diagnosis, you're engaged in thinking, historical thinking, you're engaged in often in uh, non-quantitative rational analysis, let's call it, for, come up with a fancy way of saying it. Right. Well, it, there's, there's so much written nowadays about the degree to which the notion of story is incredibly important in people's lives and and important in complex understandings of, of of situations of whether it's a medical diagnosis or whether you're somebody who's who's asked to analyze big data and answer a question there's all kinds of examples of people who've analyzed massive data sets and got things horribly wrong because they analyzed the data out of context and didn't have story and didn't have uh, another way of thinking to add to that so that they could not step on the silly landmines that they stepped on. Um, and it's, this is the same kind of thing when we're, you know, if students need to develop those kinds of tools and the classes that they take can be the context in which they develop those tools, but students, they still think a lot of times they come to class and they're going to memorize facts and then spit them back to you on a test and then flush their brain out over break and start all over again. And they can be a little bit uh, chippy yeah. when they find when they find out that they actually have to like you know that's Do not part stuff, of it, right? Yeah. And yeah. and so this is where explain the professor has to <clears throat> sort of learn them about learning and teach them um, why it is that we're learning what we're learning and how that that how that that actually gives them an advantage, how that's going to help them in other contexts. What's a um, what's another what else can an instructor do or can a, or can a student do on their own in order to um, 
to enhance their um, to enhance their themselves their active engagement outside of class. Well, this is this is where I think you can take the the participation piece that we talked about, the connection with the professor, and the out of class piece from the student standpoint, and put them together in a way that can be really interesting. Um, students should they, sh they should do this no, no matter what with every single class they have just put it on your schedule just make a plan that during the first or second week of the term you're going to go find that professor in their office hours or you're going to make an appointment to see him and you're going to come by and talk to them and start to develop a rapport yourself with yeah. that professor um, you're not going to go to the professor and say how do i get an a in your class you're going to go to the professor and say, um, "How do I make the most of this experience? How do I get the how do I get the most learning out of this class?" I'm maybe not going to be a history major. I'm going to major in this other thing, but I'm taking your class and I want to get the most I can out of it. What can I do? Um, that 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 would change everything. Yeah. If if a, if a student does that. Right, and just that simple switch between saying to the professor, how do I get an A in your class, versus how do I get the most I can out of this experience, right? I mean, as a professor, that changes everything. Um, mm -hmm. And it's interesting because I think a lot of the students that when they ask, how do I get an A in your class, they're actually not opposed to how do I get the most out of your class. They just think that the A is the grade. That's the only metric that's out there. Mm -hmm. that, they, that's what that's what they think getting the most out of your class means. Mm -hmm. not, that it's, not that it's wrong to get an A. Well, God knows I should have done it more often. <laughs> right. But yet, we're faculty, we're so used to hearing people saying, just tell me what I need to do to get an A, referring yeah. back to that sort of extrinsic motivation model and, you know, a suggestion that do just enough. Um, we're yeah, awfully it, tired of hearing that because yeah. we see what that looks like when it plays out. Now, we, we've done that to ourselves. We've done that to ourselves. Let's yeah. be honest. We're, we're basically they're saying, how do I build this car while spending as little time on the factory floor as possible? <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know, okay, we 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 we've, we've contributed to that, but well, it's and it's. I mean, our whole culture um, has shifted to us that, that mentality over the past fifteen or twenty years, and so um, we just have we have a lot of work to do to to push it back uphill. So we, um, I, I think, to just to summarize this, this out of class experiences and the engagement outside of class, anything that a, a professor or a student can do to break down the, the wall that we've created between the classroom and everything else on campus, let alone everything else in life, mm -hmm. is is better for everyone. That's spending fifty minutes, hour, hour and fifteen minutes together, uh, twice a week, three times a week. We we say, we talk a lot about, and I think we really believe this. We really want the totality of the students' college experience to be greater than the sum of the parts. Um, the thing that we tend to have missed is we just assume that that happens, um, but it doesn't just happen. People have to make that 
make that happen. And the students have to make it happen. Faculty have to make it happen. Um, and when I say make, I, I'm probably not using the right term. It's it's really still about increasing likelihoods. Um, you know, we've all worked with students who we've done everything we could do to help them, and the light bulb just began to flicker the day before graduation. Yeah. You know, and okay, um, I'd rather have it start flickering then than never come on at all. We're we're increasing our probabilities. Right, and that's the best we can do in in education. I mean, education is just a complicated business. Uh, another. Uh exemplar of ideal learning conditions according to uh, a presentation you've done is robust student effort to which the cynic might say well like yeah mm-hmm. um sure um but again it's not that simple um what does the instructor have to do to elicit robust student effort so there's an old old way of thinking about learning and it comes out of developmental psychology and it's basically this notion that you have to balance challenge and support right so if you if you throw somebody in the deep end with no idea about how to swim you've given them all kinds of challenge and no support and if they manage to get out of the pool they'll never swim again right conversely if you you know put them in one of those inflatable sumo outfits and put them in the kiddie pool, they're going to feel and look stupid and they're probably not going to come back for any more lessons either. It's not a very enjoyable experience. Yeah, it might be fun to watch, but it's not going to be very, <laughs> it's very fun, fun to watch. Them. Right. Yeah. But um, this is where this balancing of challenge and support really matters um, and how faculty do that can really make a difference. Um, and it's interesting how this dovetails with some of the things we were just talking about. If if the the notion is get an A, do enough to get an A, um, that's one that's one way of framing things. But then that's that sets up a scenario in which students are going to try to do just enough to get the A. Um, doing your doing the best you possibly can do, that's a different frame entirely, and it's continual improvement it's continual improvement that that students um, just want to just learn how to wanting to want to get better each time they do something um, and yes we're talking about 18 19 20 year olds who aren't fully mature aren't totally plugged into this idea and maybe not totally ready for it um, there's all kinds of things fighting against it but faculty can absolutely apply one frame or the other and that will make a difference in the likelihood that students um, will really put in just a little bit more effort uh, to do to do the best work they can do to push themselves to get better. Um, ideally, you know, in an ideal world, you know, it'd be nice if we created the conditions where the students doing just as much of challenging of themselves as the professor is, right? Mm-hmm. And we've you know, if, if we're lucky, we've all seen that happen. Um, but one of the ways to, to do this in very concrete terms is putting together a clear, um, a lot of people use this term rubrics, um, 
this is sort of layout, what it is that is expected of students and, and, and what that really looks like, and then show them how, um, what that, how that plays out in their own work and give them chances to revise their work, make it better, and improve it. Um, again, it's not a guarantee that it always, is, it always happens, but it sets in motion for them a sense that I can get better. Um, way too often in learning we have created a, a framework in the student's mind where um, it's sort of a performance and it's either thumbs up or thumbs down. And yeah. there's really no getting better, there's no fixing it, it's just you're either good or you're not good. Yeah, it's very much also in our culture, you either lose 50 pounds or you didn't. Right. Um, there's no incremental improvement to, say, bodybuilding, weight loss, um, whatever. We, I'm using very non-academic examples there. Um, we either achieve it, we become the best person we possibly can in a year, or we're a loser. Mm-hmm. Right. And and once that happens to a student a couple of times, they're um, you know they're they're just that well they feel the really same gonna, way that their parents do after they fail at a they fail at a diet. Right, right, and it, this is where it gets really tough because the students can have that experience in one class you don't have anything to do with, and then they come to your class. They've got that mentality going into your class, um, so you're really having to fight to f help to, to try to fix that. Um, you have to be really explicit about this is how we're going to approach this. So this is the this is the point of a rubric. Um, yeah, we'll put a, we'll put some links on. Uh, we're, we're we're sort of approaching the end of our time. We'll put some links on the rubrics. But what uh, a rubric guides to putting together a rubric? In case you're uh, someone who's never done that before, um, what to you though, uh, Mark, is that is sort of the characteristic of a good rubric? Briefly, um, I th I think that this is this is gonna is it. Rubrics can be either really vague, yeah, or they can also be way too detailed. Yeah, well, they're legal documents, then they're not a rubric. Right, and and you have to find a way to really suss out. Okay, what are the sort of key pieces of? Let's just say it's a it's a five page paper, and you know what kind of paper you want them to write, and you've been really clear with them about this is a paper where you're going to take a position, you're going to look at all of the different um, perspectives on that position uh, and then you're going to um, defend one the position you've taken at the end as the one that you think is the strongest and here's why um, mm -hmm. so within that there's some really specific elements that would make that paper a good paper or, or not a good paper and you know they go they're obvious stuff there's grammar there's framework there's shape there's you know clarity and then what you see, so if you can pick out what are the things that in this particular assignment that you think are the most important elements of this assignment, and those elements might be just generic, this is what makes a good paper, or it might be something that you happen to have been working on in that class. So you're going to really say, all right, clarity is what we're going to focus on in this. I, 
yeah, if your frame, your, your, your outline of the paper isn't as great as I'd like it to be, okay. But if clarity is there, then we're going to, because that's what we're working on. I mean, so you can kind of put it in the context of the course and what you're trying to teach. Um, and then you, you articulate pretty clearly, okay, what does it look like when there's absolutely no clarity? Like it's just completely mud. And what does it look like when it's absolutely crystal clear throughout? Mm-hmm. Yeah, a one through five description. Yeah, and and you know it it can be one through five. Some people like one through seven. Some people like one through four. Whatever. Uh, whatever. But then one of the things that makes for a useful rubric is when you sit down with students, even bef- even maybe during the process of a revision process, and say, okay, here read this text and say where would you put this on this rubric. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about that. Here's where I put it and here's why. Here's what we could fix and would move it. So the students really have a sense of, okay, now I see how that is applied to text that one of us has written or a former student has written. Um, They can really see the application of it. The the best way to do that I've I've found is with a paper that you have uh, with permission saved from a previous term or semester and using the, the document camera, the uh, $90 uh, best piece of $90 21st century technology and then comparing that to a rubric. Yeah. Right in front of everybody. Yeah, that stuff that stuff really helps because then the students, again, it's that same kind of thing we've talked about before. The students now see the connection between the the grading, the way that they're assessed, the the nature of how that plays out, how improvement can look, and then how that makes for a better paper. Uh, and then they have the opportunity to do it, um, and they get rewarded when they do it. You're setting in motion all the different things that are going to cultivate an ideal learning. Now, when I was an undergraduate, um, you know, back when uh, shortly after Daniel Coit Gilman founded Johns Hopkins, um, we had pretty simple rubrics. They were clear. It was something like, well, 33% of the grade is your midterm and 66% of your grade is your final and you get 1% for like being alive. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a clear rubric that spells out everything. <laughs> you know, it's but, sort of like, um, there are photographs of earth that are clear. Yes. Um, <laughs> so, um, zooming out is, you can still make arguments for clarity zooming out. Um, you can't really tell somebody, no, 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 turn left, turn left, turn right. No, no, no. Um, if you're zoomed out to a photograph of earth. Yeah. Where are we going? Where are we going with this metaphor? Because I'm 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 lost in space. My very nice. My point is this: the 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 thirty three sixty three and one percent um, rubric, quote unquote, is very zoomed out. It's a big picture rubric of how you're going to give somebody a final grade. But let's say that it was on a sixteen week semester. Yeah. That final. Yeah. That rubric doesn't do you any good for I've got this five-page paper to write for my class on Friday. It's it's really zoomed out from what's happening right now, and I'm a student. I'm 19 years old, and I'm making a decision about whether I'm going to go to the library and study or I'm going to go out and drink with my buddies. Sure, but I'm not giving a paper. I'm just giving a midterm and a final. I mean, what's wrong with that? 
<laughs> well, um, it depends ahead, on what kind of learning conditions you want to have. Um, yeah. Again, this is, I mean, in that scenario, I, I would suggest that that professor might have been a very, very smart person, but um, they saw things as a pitcher of water in a glass. And if you showed up with your glass and set it there, he'd pour the water in. If you didn't, then that was your fault. Um, and that just that's not creating conditions unless the conditions are entirely teacher centric uh, so your your overall suggestion is that professors have to and we've discussed this actually right at the beginning of the of our time um, you have to have early feedback for everyone's mental health that that's that is such a powerful tool. Students are getting feedback, and it's feedback that d directs them to improve and gives them a sense that they can improve. The chances of them jumping at that and responding to it are really pr quite good. Um, if Without that, they're going to default to uh, a framework that is certain to bring the crickets out. Yeah. That things will be very quiet for the next eight weeks. Right. Unless you have, it's just the voice of the professor droning on um, with their butt to the classroom as they write stuff up on the blackboard, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, Mark Salisbury, uh, thanks so much uh, for being with us. And uh, if you were going to sort of summarize um, one piece of advice to professors and one piece of advice to new undergraduates before we go, what would it be? First, prefer, first for undergraduates. First for undergraduates. Yeah, first three weeks. What do they need to do? What's the most important thing they can do? Right. Um, they have to take their learning by the horns. Um, and that means go talk to your professors. Go talk to people who are in positions to direct you and give you some advice about what what things you can do to make the most of college. Um, if you just sit around and wait for somebody to grab you by the collar and drag you somewhere or tell you where to go, they probably won't do it. It's not that they don't care. It's just that they're busy. You have to get out there and help to do your part to to sort of create that environment where you're really going to get the most out of college. So go talk to your professors. Go ask them about what can you do to make the most of this class experience. Um, get yourself involved in some meaningful student organization that um, can help you make the most of the college experience. If you have time and you have the inclination and maybe you don't find a student group that works for you, go find a job on campus that's related to the kind of work that you want to do or it's interesting to you um, and sink your teeth into that. You have to get out and take this experience by the throat, by the horns. And for faculty? Faculty, I think that the the biggest thing that they need to remember is, and maybe maybe it helps to remember what it was like what was it like your first day of college as a freshman? Um, what did it feel like? Did the professor feel like somebody you could just walk up and talk to, or did you feel like somebody who was a much more powerful individual than you and might not care about you? And then what do you have to do to blow up that dynamic so that 
the students are going to respond to everything that you put forward to them. My guest today has been Mark Salisbury. He's Director of Institutional Research and Assessment at Augustana College. Mark, thanks for being with us. Absolutely. It was fun. For more historical thinking, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can comment on today's program and find show notes, links, and readings related to today's conversation. Historically Thinking is recorded in the studio of WAUG, the student radio station of Augustana College. Our program's editor is John Ruddat. Beth Leinbach keeps the schedules in sync. Matt Lehas keeps the WAUG studio running. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week. Thank you.